0: Hello, welcome, welcome. Welcome. hungry ghosts, hungry
1: ghosts, Um, and we've got a bit of a slightly different episode for you this week, Um, it's another interview episode, following on from uh, the last episode when we were talking about unusual diets, we were lucky enough to speak to Anne Osborne um, who is originally from the UK, lives in Australia now. And is a fruitarian.
0: Yes, for the last thirty years, thirty plus, years. Yeah, she's eaten nothing but f- well, pretty much fruit and the odd nut and or seed, but but basically a fruit-based diet for more than thirty years.
1: Yeah, and um you know, I mean, quick disclaimer at this point. Obviously, we're not condoning that as necessarily as a uh, healthy diet to copy. But nor is Anne. To be fair, she's just saying it works for her, and you know yeah if it works for your body Um, frankly if you're taking medical advice from this podcast (laughs) then you should see a doctor (laughs) for other reasons um so yeah anyway um please enjoy the episode and we'll see you soon yeah and thanks so much for um taking the time to talk to us um i wonder if i could start just by asking you in very general terms to um give us some background on um your own story and how you uh, came to well first of all how it is that you define the diet and the lifestyle that you're that you follow today and then how you got to that point
2: yeah well I think sometimes labels can be limiting so you call yourself a fruitarian some people are fruitarians and they eat a lot of vegetables as well some people don't some people are very very strict on it some people drink water some people don't so I think sometimes A label can be a bit limiting. So sometimes I'll just say I'm on a fruit based diet and I eat juicy fruit and avocados because that kind of covers it without giving a label. Um, I don't have an issue with a label fruitarian, but it does mean different things to different people. For myself, I eat a diet of predominantly juicy fruit and some avocados, which are more of a, a fatty fruit as the mainstay of my diet, very occasionally I might have herbs or greens or nuts and seeds, but it's a very rare, like 95% of my diet is fresh fruit um, rather than dried fruit or processed fruit. And my journey really started when I was 20 and I was a vegetarian and I'd become aware of some of the practices in the dairy and the egg industry. And I was no longer comfortable with eating eggs and dairy products and it was totally to do with ethics. I was at uni at the time in the UK in um, Canterbury and I thought I was pretty healthy. I had no major health issues and anyway it was a purely ethical decision. Me and a friend we'd been sort of thinking about veganism for a while and then we finally made the decision like overnight we'll give up all animal products and I was at university as I said and the campus was at the top of a hill And my student digs were at the bottom of a hill. And so every day to get into college, I would have to walk up this big hill. And every single day, by the time I got to the top of the hill, I would be wheezy and I would have a tightness in my chest. And the very next day, after I gave up all animal products, I was at the top of the hill and it suddenly hit me. I wasn't tight in my chest. No, I wasn't wheezing. And I've never had that since. So that for me was like, wow, I wasn't you know, looking for any health benefits. I wasn't sort of interested in any health benefits because I was 20. And as far as I was aware, I was in good health. But that restruck me. And I made the connection then that what we put in our bodies affects how we feel and how our health is. And so I started reading and researching and finding out more about health and what we eat. And I tried different types of vegan diet. I tried an Ann Wigmore vegan diet, which is a lot of Wheat grass and sprouts. I tried a macrobiotic vegan diet, which was mostly cooked and very much into balancing the yin and the yang and the energy. And I tried like a basic whole foods vegan diet. And I felt good on all of them, but not that good that I stuck with any one of them for more than about a year and a half. Anyhow, um, when I was 24, and I was back in my hometown of Leicester in the UK, I went to a talk, I was part of a local animal rights group, and we had speakers every now and again. And we had a speaker from Leicester, and he was just a local Leicester lad. And his name was David Shelley, and he was a fruitarian. And he just looked fantastic. He had great energy, great vibrance, and obviously whatever he was doing was working really well for him and so a whole bunch of us that were ethical vegans we all thought well oh, we want to try this and it was really good to to try and start the diet with a whole other bunch of people because we had that support and also we formed an organic fruit buying group because in the UK you can't get good local fruit especially organic all year round so we were sourcing the most delicious fruits we were getting sweet grenadilla from Burkina Faso and mangoes from Egypt and Italian apricots and that's how I got into the diet though I did a transition because I was pregnant at the time with my eldest son so I didn't want to do anything too drastic so I gradually transitioned eating more and more fruit less and less cooked vegan food until after about just over a year I was on 100% fruit diet and that's how I got into it basic mono meals of really good quality fruit. I didn't get into the gourmet raw, which is a lot of preparation. And one of the things I really appreciated, especially after being macrobotic for over a year, where I spent like four hours a day cooking and preparing food, was the simplicity of it. You've got your boxes of beautiful quality organic fruit and you ate it. And there was no washing up. There was no prep. And it was a, a kind of freedom, doing that. And it just freed up a lot of time for other things. But the quality of the fruit was there. So you can just eat it in a mono meal. And I think that's important, you know, to get good quality fruit, you could just eat, you know, a plate of mangoes, and there was nothing you could do to those mangoes to make them taste any better, or, you know, a bowl of apricots. So that's how I got into this diet. And I've been on the diet for 32 years now. And um, I've, you know, I haven't, Look back. It's stuck with me. I've stuck with it. And I'll always be ethically vegan because that's an ethical thing. I wouldn't say I'll always be fruitarian, but nothing I've tried, you know, has ever come close to the fruitarian diet. So, yeah, I've been on it for 32 years now. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I I was going to ask, you mentioned the, you know, the ethical um, background of your decision to go vegan, which I imagine, you know, it's it's quite a common uh, motivation for, for vegans and is there so it sounds as though it was kind of from there to fruitarianism was more of a kind of practical thing and a feeling good thing and a health type thing rather than um because I, I chatted to ronnie smith um who actually is the one who suggested i get in touch with you and he said that there are some fruitarians who are or, or raw vegans who are raw vegan or fruitarian in itself for ethical reasons so that they, they feel as though there's kind of another layer of um ethical reasons not to cook plants for example or not to mm. eat certain plants is can you yeah. shed some light on that
2: yes and i think there is an ethical thing behind it i don't think the ethics for me is as strong as being vegan which is is very very strong but there still is this ethical aspect because fruit really is the only food on the planet that's freely given any other food that we eat will kill a plant will kill an animal but fruit is given freely because the plant or the tree wants us to eat that fruit. Because unless a plant is a triffid, they can't move. So they're stuck in one place, they need their seeds to be spread far away from the parent plant or the parent tree. Because otherwise, all the babies will be growing in the shade of the parent tree, and they'll be competing for nutrients, they'll be competing for light, and they'll be competing for, you know, space. So the plants need their seeds to be spread. And some trees will use water like coconuts for example coconut palms are often found on beaches because when a coconut is perfectly ripe and mature it will fall off go into the sea and bob along and float away other plants spread their seeds by wind so like the dandelion clock but that only really works for very light seed you know you you couldn't do that with a mango seed and so a third method is by animals and sometimes seeds will stick to an animal's coat, like burrs, they will stick and they will get spread in that way. But the other main thing with animals is ingesting. So, an animal comes along, eats the fruit, and either like a mango seed or an avocado seed, because it's big, or something like a tomato or a passion fruit or a strawberry, it'll eat the fruit and then go and poo somewhere else and um, distribute the seeds. So, you know, there is that, you know, that ethical side of it, which is part of the the reason for remaining fruitarian, that you're not killing anything by eating a fruitarian diet. So I know there are some people that are ethical fruitarians, and they're very, very strict on that. Whereas myself, I do appreciate the ethical side of it, but I will also occasionally eat some nuts or eat some greens or eat some herbs. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And why is it that uh, nuts don't in general seem to feature like it it seems as though um there are more raw raw vegans who eat more fruit in order to get enough calories to sort of sustain them through the day rather than eating lots of nuts which i I would imagine would be a very sort of nutrient dense calorific uh, way of doing it so why why do people lean towards fruit more than nuts
2: I think a lot of people feel better eating fruit because it's a more high carbohydrate food and we need carbohydrates. We need fats as well. I I believe that. I eat avocados, I eat durian, I eat young coconut flesh sometimes. So I get fat from those sources i think nuts can often be hard to digest you can soak nuts but nuts have anti-nutrients in because in general a plant doesn't want you to eat its seeds because it's put a lot of energy into making seeds which are for new growth so there can be anti-nutrients in nuts and seeds which can make them harder to digest there's some animals like squirrels which have sort of got this symbiotic relationship with trees and they can they have certain physiological traits that they can digest these nuts very well but also because squirrels go and bury them more than half the nuts they get they'll distribute far away from the parent tree to grow into new trees so there's that kind of symbiotic relationship with squirrels they're not just eating all of the nuts and I think a lot of people do find if you start eating a lot of nuts they maybe don't feel as well and also if you're relying for nuts for your macronutrients you're getting a lot of fat but maybe not so much carbohydrate so i think really the the well-being aspect is why a lot of people prefer fruit over high fat a lot of people try both and decide that fruit works best for them but i guess there's other people you know, we're all individuals, some people might find that a higher fat or a kind of keto fruitarian diet works best for them. And I think with any diet, you need to find what works best for you, and tweak it to your own needs, because we all have very differing needs. And we have differing needs over time, our gender, our age, our activity level, all sorts of things will contribute to what we actually need in terms of macronutrients in the diet. Mm -hmm. I have
0: a question about, um, obviously you've spoken quite a lot about your, your own personal journey. I'd, I'd just be wondering, I'm wondering if how you've seen the kind of the community change over that kind of 32-year period. So is that something, are you starting to see lots of more young people starting to come in, certainly over the kind of the last five years we've seen the rise of veganism? Um, is that something that, that you can touch on?
2: Oh, yes, for sure. So when I first started out on like a fruitarian diet, there was like a little photostated, magazine that came out i think four times a year and there was also in australia there was a guy Rene beresford and he sent out fruitarian network news that came out and you'd be so excited to get them in the post because there was no internet there was no connecting like that so you'd get these magazines and you get people's phone numbers and their addresses so you might write letters to them or you might phone them up and there were a few meetups here and there but I think the whole rise of social media and connecting people has really changed things. And also it's very easy now for people to find out information, you know, back in the day, you would likely not have heard about a fruitarian diet unless, like me, you happen to meet somebody like David Shelley or you happen to stumble on a book. But now there's so much information at people's fingertips. I think it's a lot easier to access and read about different kinds of diets and lifestyles. And I also think that, yes, maybe there's younger people come in, but I think the raw food diet has kind of ebbs and flows. So Arnold Errett was one of the sort of founders of Um, fruitarian diets and he passed in 1922 I think but there was a whole revival of his work in the 1970s so when I first came to Australia I was meeting all these people that were fruitarian in the 1970s and then things sort of maybe go down a bit and then they come up again so I think there's waves with diets but I do think a, a real game changer is the internet where people can read books online, where they can get information, where they could join forums. And forums aren't so much a thing now, but when the internet first started up, there were lots of raw food forums where people who were thirsty to connect with other people doing something similar, they would all go on the forums. So I think that's sort of like the forums have kind of died out now, but there's other ways that people connect through social media. And I think there's been a lot of fruit festivals in the past sort of 12 years there's been fruit festivals starting up all over the world and that's been really useful for a lot of people that feel isolated yes they've got their internet friends but they can come together with other people like face to face so I think that's something that's changed in the past 12 years the rise of festivals specifically for fruitarians or raw vegans to come together
1: I think am I right in saying fruit fest UK was just the other week
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. And I've been to, I think I've been to five of the UK Fruit fests and had a great time because, you know, you, you see some people that you've met before, you see new people each year, you make friendships and it's in a way a bit like charging up your batteries and the batteries last for another year until you go back to the the next Fruit Festival and they're mm. just Really good places. Yes, there's the fitness classes, which are fun. And yes, there's the lectures, which are interesting. But I think the main thing is just networking and connecting with other people that are living a similar life to you. And I mean, I was very fortunate because when I started out, there was about six of us all doing this diet. But a lot of people are doing it in isolation. They don't even know any of the vegans, let alone any raw vegans or fruitarians. So I think these festivals have been really important for many people just to connect and not feel strange, not feel like, oh, I'm the weird person with a big bowl of fruit while everyone's eating their other food, that everybody's everybody's sitting there with a big bowl of fruit. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, could you give, like you say, I mean, obviously dietary things are very different for everybody. But would you mind giving us um, an insight into what an average day for you might look like food wise?
2: Yeah, so I haven't changed much because I never really got into this diet through gourmet stuff or fancy meals. It was always because we had such good quality fruit and it was an organic buying group. It was always mono meals. And that's still what I eat today. If it's a special celebration like a birthday, I might make a fruitarian cake. Or when my children were younger, we'd have fruitarian parties and do all sorts of creative stuff. But yeah, in general. So, usually if it's citrus season, I will have citrus juice um, in the morning for my first meal, probably two to three glasses full. And I hand squeeze it. So, I leave a lot of the fibre in and I find that works better for me just hand squeezing it so fresh. And when you look at the shell, There's very little left there. So most of the fiber has actually gone into the juice. And then um, later on in the day, I'll have another meal. And that might be, at the moment, chocolate sapote, because they're in season here and we've got some growing in the garden. Um, Or it might be mangoes in mango season or persimmon in persimmon season, usually um, another form of juicy fruit, but not juice in its whole state. And then... My third meal will usually be if I'm eating avocados or if I'm eating durian, it'll be durian or avocados, which is it. And I still eat them more, just as is. I will have a meal of them, maybe two avocados or three if they're small. And then my last meal would usually be something a bit lighter, um, as my last meal of the day sometimes i'll only have three meals a day but if i want something else i might have some papaya or i might have um some rambutan at the moment because they're in season and very much eating with the seasons what's locally available and trying at the moment probably 95 percent of the food i eat is local to the area which i'm fortunate to be able to do when i was in the uk it was probably like five percent if that was local fruit um so yeah very simple mono meals eat as much as i want i don't count calories i've never counted calories i judge by my energy levels um because i'm quite active like i run 10k every other day and i garden a lot of the day because we have three acres here so i'm very physically active so if i feel like i need more i'll eat more if it's a quieter day i'll eat less my weight's pretty stable it's been pretty stable for the past 32 years so if i was to lose weight i would think well maybe i need to eat a bit more if i was gaining weight well maybe i'm eating a bit more than i need so yeah Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i was going to ask whether your move to australia was was inspired partly by the availability of more fresh fruit
2: yes it was partly and by the climate as well Although I loved, I think wherever you are, you make the best of it. I loved being in England. I ate very well. We had the buying group. Leicester has a great market, one of the best markets in Europe. There's lots of ethnic shops in Leicester. So really, I was getting very good quality fruit there, but it wasn't all local. And in terms of working towards self-sufficiency, it would be pretty challenging in the UK. I did have an allotment. Um, in the UK at one point for a couple of years, and I did grow some of my own fruit there. But it's not the same as being in a subtropical climate where things just grow really quickly and things are in season all year round. So in the sort of like the north of Europe, there's very much a season, to summer and autumn, where you've got local produce. Whereas here, I can eat local produce all the year round, which I, I like because I think there's the environmental aspect as well which is important to me and by eating local produce you're reducing your food miles and it just it just feels good to eat stuff that I've seen just wait until they come around again
1: yeah mm. um you mentioned I mean you mentioned mono meals a couple of times and I was going to ask I read on your website um uh mentions about mono diets and well first of all uh so it sounds as though at the moment you will eat kind of the same type of fruit for one meal but but vary it Mm. through the through the day so um is is first of all is that just because you prefer to do that per meal or is there some kind of benefit to doing that and second of all is a mono diet where you would only eat say mangoes for a set period of time and and what are the benefits of that
2: Yeah, so I do prefer to eat mono for a couple of reasons. The first one is in terms of digestion, it's the easiest on the digestive system. And for most people, the vast majority of our energy actually goes in digesting food. And that's why when people have a traditional Christmas dinner, everybody's asleep on the sofa afterwards. And when I used to go to my family's Christmas dinner, I'd be the one that did all the washing up because I'd be like, I'd have my melon and my dates and I'd be like this and they'd be all... So, yeah, a lot of energy is expended in digestion. So when you eat mono meals, it really is the easiest on your digestive tract. You can also tell if something agrees with you or if it doesn't. If you're eating a meal of mangoes and you get some kind of reaction, unless it's the chemicals on the mangoes, it might be that mangoes aren't the fruit for you. So for ease of digestion, and it really, I think your digestive system works very, very um efficiently when you're eating mono meals. And as is coming out now more and more that the gut biome is the seat of most people's health. And we're really hearing a lot of information, a lot of scientists, even mainstream, how important the gut biome is to health, how the gut is connected to the brain by the vagus nerve. So if we're having issues in our digestive system, it doesn't just affect our digestive system. It affects our immune system because most of the immune system is connected in the guts, but also our brain. The second reason is that fruit has to stand alone when you eat it in a meal. So I've heard some people say, oh, that papaya was rubbish, but I blended it with some um, melon and it tasted great. So when you you've only got so much space in your stomach for your food, when you eat mono, it's got to be really good quality because you're eating a mango by itself or an avocado by itself or a bunch of grapes by themselves. So if it doesn't taste good, it goes on the compost. So I think it, it helps to ensure that you're eating really, really good quality fruit. Because whatever diet you're on, if you're not meeting your macronutrient needs and if you're not meeting your micronutrient needs and macros is carbohydrates, proteins and fats, your micronutrients are your antioxidants, your vitamins and your minerals. So if you're not meeting your needs, you're not going to be well. And so if you're eating really good quality fruit, then you're more likely to thrive on the diet and you're not going to say, well, this doesn't taste very good, but I'll blend it with something. I'll make a smoothie. So that's the two main reasons, the ease of digestion and also the fruit has to be of really good quality if you're eating mono meals, because this diet it's not like sackcloth and ashes. It's enjoyable to me. I just think I can't believe the flavors and how delicious the food is. And the second question about the extended mono diet for me. Um, there's things in our environment that we can't control because people say to me, why do you do mono diets? You've been on a fruit diet for 32 years. Why do you still need to do mono diets?" And I'll usually do them a few times a year. But there's a lot of things in our environment we can't control. So pesticides, chemicals, um, electromagnetic frequencies, all kinds of things exhaust from cars, different types of pollution, aerial spraying, all sorts of stuff. And for me, going on a mono diet for an extended period of time is like taking your car to the garage for a tune. And your body can heal and rebalance, but you're still giving it nutrition. And a lot of people water fast for healing reasons. Now, water fasting definitely has its place. And a lot of people have got great results through water fasting. But not everybody's able to water fast. Some people can't take the time off work to just lie down for three weeks. They can't afford it because you really need to be supervised on an extended water fast. And that can cost several thousands of dollars or pounds to do an extended water fast. Um, or they might have commitments. They can't get the time off work or they've got children. But doing a monodiet can bring some of the benefits of a water fast but you can control it more and you can also control the elimination and when i've done mono diets a lot of the time i've had children to care for and i've been able to care for them i've been able to work full time do lots of other things while still doing a bit of cleansing and you can control the elimination when you water fast Arnold Errett said, "You're on God's operating table, which you are really because that's why you need to be supervised because people can have like elimination, they can have mental as well elimination, and you know they need to be looked after, and you can't really change that amount of elimination what you're going to do? drink less water, you can't change it, but when you do a mono diet." You can change the amount of elimination through the volume of the fruit you're eating. So if things are going a little bit fast and you've got responsibilities and you feel, well, oh, I've got no energy, you can increase the volume of that fruit. On the other hand, if you're thinking, well, it doesn't really feel like anything's happening and I'd like to sort of like I've got an acute issue and I want it to heal. Then you can have less, you can have lesser amounts. So you can control it a bit more. And you can also, in general, get on with your day to day life. You might have a bit less energy, but you can still work or look after children, which you can't necessarily do if you're water fasting. So I do think there are health benefits from doing mono diets, and they don't have to be huge ones. I've done very long mono diets, but you can just do a couple of days or a couple of weeks um, and still get benefits.
1: And water fasting, that would be just not eat, not eating any food at all and just drinking water is that right?
2: Yes, just drinking water for a certain period of time, yeah. and I've met many people that have healed a lot of stuff doing water fasting, and it's very interesting. I've done a the most I've done is a two week water fast, but with the water fasting, it's not always conducive to people's general lives and they can't always take that time off or they can't afford to take that time off because you really do need to be supervised or most people do unless they're experienced water fasters because all sorts of things can happen when you water fast and it can potentially be a dangerous thing to do if you're not supervised
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I've um you mentioned right back at the start as well on the subject of water that some people choose not to drink mm. water as part of their their kind of approach to fruitarian slash raw vegan diet so i wonder if you could touch on what that means in reality because it's probably quite shocking to people who aren't familiar with uh, with this world
2: yeah and i think again it's very variable because if somebody's living in a colder climate then and they're not very physically active they may be able to get all the water they need from fruit because fruit some fruit you know especially things like watermelons or cucumbers they're like 90% water and the reason people often need a lot of water in their diet their eight glasses of water is because a lot of the foods they're eating are dehydrating and those foods need water to be digested like bread or some kinds of you know crackers things like that are very dry when you're eating a fruit-based diet, you do get a high volume of water in your diet. And for myself, when I was in the UK, um, I could go for like weeks, especially if I was having a lot of orange juice or a lot of melons, I could weeks without drinking any water. But certainly here in the summer, in tropical far north Queensland, where it's very, very hot. And if I'm running, or if I'm working all day in the garden, I will have my fruit, but I'll also need to drink maybe a litre, a litre and a half, even two litres of water. And so I think it can be limiting if you say, right, we'll never drink water because water's, I mean, some fruit owners say water's toxic. Um, But it's more toxic if your kidneys fail because you're dehydrated, in my opinion. So I think it's important to go by your thirst reflexes and look at, the situation you're in, if you're in tropical far north Queensland and it's the middle of summer, you can probably eat all the fruit you need because you've got enough calories, but you will still need extra liquid because you're perspiring more and just because of the humidity and things like that. So I think it's important as well not to say oh, you need to have eight you know, glasses of water a day, because if you're in the winter and you're on an orange juice diet, you probably don't need to have Eight glasses of water, and I think as long as you have a good thirst reflex, you're okay. Now, as people age, one reason why old people often get dehydrated is their thirst reflex becomes, you know, not very good, and so they won't get that desire to drink, and they can easily get dehydrated. But if your thirst reflex is good, your um, the colour of your urine as well. If it's dark, you're dehydrated. If you're not urinating very much you're probably dehydrated. If you have dark circles under your eyes, which relates to the kidney area, um, you're probably dehydrated. So there's ways, as well as taking note of your thirst reflex, look at how many times you're urinating, look at the color of your urine. Does it smell strong? Does it look a bit funny? And there's those things that you can do to see if you're well hydrated. Because one huge issue with getting dehydrated and damaging your kidneys is that you can't see, you can't see if you're damaging your kidneys until it's too late. And the kidneys don't repair very well, like the liver is amazing at regenerating. So you can have 10% of liver function. And if you look after yourself and do some healing protocols, you can get to 90% function back in your liver. But with the kidneys, it's a bit of a different story. And there's the whole thing with dry fasting, which I mean, I don't know enough about it to give an informed opinion, but I do know there's people that can get into issues with dry fasting, especially if they're a tropical climate, because they're damaging their kidneys and they can't see. You can't see that you're damaging your kidneys until it's too late when they're damaged and they're not likely to repair. So, yeah, I think with a water thing, monitor your urine. The color of your urine, your thirst reflex, and if you're in doubt, drink a bit more. It's not going to really harm you unless you're drinking, you know, gallons and gallons, um, because it's better to be slightly overhydrated than be slightly dehydrated.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, while we're on the subjects of nutrition, you, you mentioned you know the importance of people getting um, micro and macronutrients, but you, I obviously, I can see how if you're eating a lot of um, fruit and maybe if you're eating nuts as well, you can get plenty of um fats and carbohydrate. But where do how do people address the protein issue? I suppose obviously you can get it from nuts too, but how how do you get enough protein if you're following a fruitarian diet?
2: Well I think there is protein in all fruits, but just not huge amounts. Um, If you're worried about your protein you could always include more seeds, more nuts, maybe more avocados. Um, if you eat mushrooms, mushrooms, things that in general have a bit of a higher protein content. It's hard to be protein deficient unless you are calorie deficient. And when you see these children in Africa and they have the big swollen stomachs, which is a protein deficiency disease, it's often because they're malnourished. So any macronutrients they ingest which includes protein will be used for fuel in the body because it's imperative they keep their heart beating and their lungs going and their brain working and so the protein is used for energy because they're in such a caloric thick deficit and so they get protein deficient not just because they're eating too little protein because they're eating too little calories in total and I think there's ways you can see you can look at your skin you can look at your hair you can look at your nails and if your nails are good and strong and if your hair's good if your immune system's good you know it's very unlikely that you'll be protein deficient if you have got good energy levels if you heal well if you have a wound And one thing I noticed is being on a fruit diet, I heal so much quicker than when I was on a standard diet. If I cut myself, it'll heal much quicker. It'll stop bleeding much quicker. um, There'll be less scarring. So there's things that you can sort of like look at to see if you're protein deficient or not. But in general, if you're eating enough calories... You'll be getting enough protein, and people that usually have protein deficiency have issues with getting enough calories, whether it's because there's not enough available or because they've got eating disorders. Um, but yeah, if you're concerned, you could just add some more nuts, add some more seeds um, which will really up your protein levels. but just look at the signs in your body you know how you how your wounds are healing, how your hair is growing, if your hair is very slow to grow, then you might think well am I, am I getting enough protein.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, in general, are there any things, any sort of areas where um, you'd like to sort of? Because obviously, um, you're one of a lot of people who are sort of extolling the benefits of this diet, and it's and it's been great for you. But if there are people mm. who were thinking of getting into it, are there kind of certain things you'd you'd advise them to be wary of? On, on the flip side,
2: yeah, I think I would never say the fruit, fruitarian diet is best for everyone. I think everybody has to find what works best for them personally. And I do think that we have a a fruit design to our body. I think our body's very geared to do well on a fruit-based diet, but everybody's slightly different genetically through what we've eaten in the past, what our parents, what our grandparents have eaten. It's like some people can, um, you know, manufacture their own B12. I've known people on a raw vegan diet and they haven't taken a B12 supplement in 20, 30 years and they have no deficiency symptoms. Other people have done it for 18 months and got severely B12 deficient. So obviously we're all sort of kind of different, even though we've got similarities. So I think it's important that people find a diet that works best for them. And I also think there's three things that are important to thrive on this diet. And one of them is to have faith in the diet, but not blind faith. Do your research first. Look at anatomy, physiology, dietetics, biology. Look at all those sciences, because even though this to me, me, it's a spiritual diet, it's also got to be founded in science. You've got to look at the science. You've got to look at nutrition. You've got to see, where am I getting this from? Where am I getting that from? And have a good, solid foundation. And I think that really helps. And if you're not sure... Read some more, research some more before you embark on the diet or just change it a little bit to start with. Have one meal of fruit a day for breakfast and then have different foods for the other meals. See how you go. Do a gradual transition to the diet and always, always look at it day to day. Do I need to change this? Do I need to eat more fat or maybe I need to eat more juicy fruits or maybe I need to have some more greens? And see what you need to do, not just saying, "Right, I'm going to be a fruitarian, I'm going to do it for 32 years and everything's going to be fine. I think it's very important. And, And for women, women might need a bit more fat than men. Or if a woman's pregnant, she might need a different nutrient ratio. So it's not static either. It's not doing the same diet, exactly the same. But the seasonal changes, the changes that depend on your age or your body condition and things like that. And also for anybody wanting to go on a raw vegan diet, I would say be wary of being deficient in B12 and vitamin D, because they're two things that in general, we can't get from the diet. And as I mentioned before, some people seem to do fine without supplementing other people get into real problems. So it's really worth getting your B12 levels checked and your vitamin D levels checked and supplement if you need to. And you can get good quality vegan vitamin D supplements now. They're getting better and better all the time, more natural. And B12, they're not expensive supplements. You can get sublingual, which goes under your tongue, which is better assimilated. If anyone has pernicious anemia, which means that they lack the intrinsic factor, they either have to have injections of B12 or they need to um, have a sublingual because that bypasses the digestive system and goes straight into the blood through the veins under the tongue. Uh, vitamin D, um, I'm fortunate that I live somewhere where we get beautiful weather all, just about all year round. And so I can get enough vitamin D from where I live, but people living in colder climates, or if somebody works indoors for the vast majority of the day, and they can't get enough sun exposure or they don't want to get sun exposure, then getting a vitamin D lamp or taking a supplement will be very important because vitamin D, a lot of people are deficient in it. It's not just um, people on a raw vegan diet because vitamin D is primarily got through the sun. And people that have very dark skin will absorb less or people that are indoors or live in a cold climate. So I would say be cautious of your vitamin B12 and your vitamin D and um, really eat the best quality fruits that you can. That's so important, and especially organic fruits, because it's not just that they're grown in better soil that's important. It's not just that they don't have chemicals on that can disrupt our gut bio. One of the really important things about eating organic or non-sprayed food is that this wonderful relationship between fruit trees and the fungi in the soil. So basically... You can have a lot of calcium in your soil, but trees can't assimilate it in its inorganic state. But what the fungi does is break down certain bonds in that calcium in the soil. For instance, calcium phosphate breaks it down into a form that the trees can absorb through their roots. In exchange, the trees, which can photosynthesize because they've got leaves, they can pass some of those carbohydrates onto the fungi who can't photosynthesize because they don't have green leaves. So they have this wonderful symbiotic relationship. Now, when you're eating fruit grown in soil that's been treated with herbicides or fungicides or pesticides, that kills the microbes in the soil and it also kills the fungi in the soil. So if the fungi are not in the soil, there'll be a lot less calcium in the fruit because the trees won't be able to absorb it because this symbiotic relationship between the fungi and the trees is destroyed. And there's huge amounts. It's something like 13.1 gigatons of carbon is sequestered each year in fungi via trees and plants so it's like and there's more research coming out showing how important fungi now are in terms of storing carbon and sequestering carbon which they get from the trees and in exchange they make the calcium and other minerals um, into an assimilable state for the trees Mm
1: -hmm. Hmm. and could could some people have issues uh, relating to the high sugar content of this kind of a diet like with maybe with their teeth or, or blood sugar things like that
2: I think potentially some people could if they're eating fruit that's maybe not such good quality and it's got a higher sugar to mineral ratio. I think some things like inorganic um, seedless grapes and inorganic watermelon can sometimes have too much sugar and not enough minerals in there. Um, But I have known a couple of people that were type one diabetics and were on a fruit based diet and they both found that they did very well on it they would need to monitor their blood sugar, but they found if they had dried fruit, that would often be a bit much and would push it over. But in general, if they're having whole fruit, their blood sugar levels would remain within a good range. And a lot of the reasons for that is the fiber and the other micronutrients in the fruit helps the sugar to be absorbed quite slowly. And there's even been scientific studies that show When somebody eats a bowl of sugary cereal, their insulin levels will spike. And if fruit and even fruit juice, which doesn't have the fiber, is added to that sugary cereal, even though the whole total content, sugar content will actually rise, there'll be less blood spikes of insulin because the fruit is somehow affecting the absorption of the sugar. And it's not just the fiber because they've had that with fruit juice taking the juice from fruit, but it's probably something to do with antioxidants or other micronutrients in the fruit. A lot of things that we maybe don't know the full story yet, but helps to regulate how that sugar is absorbed. And when you think it's the actual total sugar content is increasing with adding fruit or fruit juice, but the insulin spikes are reducing. But again, it's a very individual thing. If somebody doesn't you know, agree with eating a a lot of sugar, then maybe the fruit diet isn't for them. Maybe they'd be better off on a different type of, of raw diet, maybe a higher fat diet or more greens or more vegetables. And there are people that do really well on a high vegetable diet. So it's I'm not saying it's the diet for everyone. For me, it works very well. I like the environmental aspect of it because The more fruit we eat from trees, the more trees that are planted. And these trees really help with giving out oxygen, taking in carbon dioxide, trees really having a good benefit on our environment. There's very little waste. If you're just buying unpackaged fruit and you compost, you literally don't have anything in your rubbish bin. There's there's no rubbish. So that for me, I love that aspect that I feel my put my rubbish bin out and there'll be very very little in the rubbish bin every week um and sometimes like nothing at all really um so that's a huge benefit the environmental aspect of eating fruit but you know also for me the health for me it works it has to work on the health level because you can't do a diet for an extended period of time even if it ticks the ethical boxes if it ticks the environmental boxes if it doesn't also tick the the health boxes
0: Mm Yeah, you mentioned you you talked obviously a lot about the um, the things to watch out for if if someone's kind of coming to this diet for the first time in terms of kind of the physiological internal element. I wonder if you faced any challenges, certainly at first around the kind of the other people in your life, friends, family and what, what their opinions were. And if you've got any advice for someone kind of going down this route for the first time, maybe how they can deal with that.
2: Mm, Yeah, I think that can be challenging for a lot of people. The social aspect, which is why the fruit festivals, I think, have been very helpful for a lot of people because they're coming into an environment where they don't feel like they're the odd or the weird one. I think one of the things I talked about earlier, having faith in the diet is very important, but not blind faith. So doing your research so that you feel confident in the diet. And if you don't feel confident in the diet, you probably shouldn't really be doing it without doing more research or looking into it further and I think when you have that confidence when you feel like yes I've looked at the science I've looked at the dietetics I've looked at our anatomy I've looked at what nutrients I need I've looked at what sources I can get these nutrients from and when you feel confident I think that gets mirrored back to you I've had very little opposition from people because i've brought two children up on the diet and they've both been really really healthy and happy children neither of them got any of the childhood illnesses um, and i think when people see that your children are very healthy and very happy that you know that is a, an influence but um you know also when you have that confidence because if somebody says to you oh where do you get this or where do you get that or this and that and you've got the knowledge to answer them and explain can i think Having that confidence gets mirrored back. If you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I should be bringing my children up on this diet, or I don't know if it's the diet for me, people will pick up on that and they will mirror that back to you and say, we'll be doing the diet for your children, or should you be doing this or that? So I think that can help having a confidence, but not like just an empty confidence, a confidence because you've done your due diligence. I think as well, what's happened, what can help me and what has helped me is using nonviolent communication or compassionate communication, which um, was developed by Marshall Rosenberg. And how that works is if someone is confrontational to you, if someone disagrees with you, you listen to them, you hear them, you repeat back what they've said. It doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with them, but it means you're listening to them and you've heard them. And if you have those, you know, sort of like those skills to do that, then people are more likely to listen to you. If somebody says, well, I really don't think you should be bringing your child up on this diet, because I think, you know, they'll get really sick. And then if you say, um, it sounds like you've got concerns that Bringing up my child on this diet might have negative impacts on their health. And then you can go on to say, well, actually, they've never had any of the childhood illnesses They're, you know, within their ratios for their development. But you're listening. And then if you listen to someone, someone's more likely to listen back to you. And you can't get into a confrontational situation if one person is deflecting that. And people, everybody needs to be heard. And if you just like somebody says, well, you can't do that to your kids, that's cruel, and you should be taken to the, you know, we should report you. If you say, how dare you report, my children are very healthy, you don't know what you're talking about, then you've got that kind of confrontation going on. But if you show the person, yes, you're listening to them, you're hearing their concerns they're more likely then to listen to you and your explanation of what you're doing and why you are, you know, feel sure that your child is in good health. So I think that's important. Um, I think also as well, to put your own needs as being important, if you're cooking for the rest of your family and by cooking, it's making you want to eat food that you'd rather not be eating. Maybe you can say, look, Um, I'm going to skip off the cooking duties for a while, and somebody else can do the cooking and taking yourself off and looking after your own needs, rather than everybody else's needs. So I think it's important to do the best you can so that you can succeed on the diet that you choose. And if that's a fruit diet, you might need to say, well, you know, I'm not going to cook for the family for a while, then do it in such a way that, you know, they don't feel, you know, like you're abandoning them. But that you're also looking after your own needs for a while. I mean, I cooked for my father when he was alive, for my children. My husband's a vegan, but he's not a raw vegan. And I don't have any issues with cooking. I don't see it as my food. It- you know, I'm perfectly happy to cook a meal and then I'll sit down, I'll have my fruit and my husband or my children will eat their cooked food. So it, it doesn't bother me, but for people that are new and it might trigger them to wanting to eat the food they're cooking, then I think, you know, the strategies that they can use to, you know, make everybody happy in the end. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, while we're on the subject of kind of resistance to this kind of lifestyle, this kind of diet, um, why do you think it is that i mean if there is kind of scientific uh, basis to back it up why do you think it hasn't entered the mainstream science do you think there are kind of vested interests certain industries and stuff stop it and it's a bit of a leading question obviously but why do you think mm. um why do you think that what what do you think the barriers are to entry for to the mainstream
2: i think quite possibly there's vested interests and what's interesting is that i looked I spent hours and hours and hours looking in old newspaper archives for clips. And because they're all digitalized now, it's very easy to go online and get lost in all these newspaper clips. But what really surprised me was for like about the past 150 years before the 1950s, there were lots and lots of articles in mainstream newspapers syndicated across the United States. And most of stuff United States have digitalized a lot of newspapers and other countries are a bit slower to do that. So there's loads of articles saying how good fruit diets are. There was um, doctors Advocating fruit diets for all kinds of illness, syndicated going across the United States. There was much um, stuff on this. And then around the 1950s, suddenly all these articles started to disappear, which is really when Big Pharma came in with all their drugs for a lot of um, things. And so I think to some extent, yes, there is vested interest because if you're healthy, if you're on a fruit diet, you're not going to the doctor very often. And so you're not getting all these drugs. And and more and more, people seem to be on so many drugs and they'll be on a drug and it'll be like, you're on this drug for life. And it's like, well, why should you be on a drug for life? Surely that's not dealing with what's up with you. Surely you need to heal at some level. So you're not, yes, you might need that drug for a certain period of time, but for life, you've got a repeat prescription for life, never ending. And the drug companies have got a never-ending source of income coming in from you. So I think potentially there's a lot of money from sickness. Um, in China, doctors used to only get paid if their patients were well, which I think is fantastic, because then they have got a motivation to keep their patients well. Um, but now there seems to be a motivation to get your patients on a lot of drugs rather than look at the reasons behind, you know, why they're getting sick Um, I also think it is a lot of foods are very addictive, a lot of foods have excitotoxins in, they have chemicals in which people get addicted to. And There's a lot of promotion, like when you look at kids, how many times do you see an apple advertised on the television? Or how often do you see, you might see bananas sometimes or avocados or kiwis, but really they're the only kinds of fruits that you see advertised regularly. And yet children are bombarded with all kinds of cereals, with Happy Meals, with McDonald's, with all this kind of processed, highly processed foods. And these highly processed foods contain excitotoxins and they also have addictive properties and one of the reasons they have addictive properties is going again back to the gut the microbiome in your gut so you have helpful bacteria in there you have not so helpful bacteria and you have neutral bacteria and a lot of the bacteria associated with junk food are the not so helpful bacteria but they can actually cause physical cravings for the food because those bacteria live off that food and it's in their interest that you keep eating that food. So when people get addicted to foods and they'll say, oh, I'm so weak, you know, I can't, why can't I give up these foods? It's not just you, it's this whole lot of, you know, microbes in you, in your guts that are thwarting your efforts. And it's, you know, it's quite amazing, really, the connection between the guts and our brain and also cravings. A lot of the time cravings are not us being weak. It's the microbes in our gut, which are encouraging us to eat certain types of food and make those choices. Another thing is the more a food is processed, the more value the seller has on it. You know, you can buy a potato and it will probably cost you, I don't know, 50 pence or a dollar but if you buy a bag of chips it'll be a lot more and there might not even be one whole potato in it so the more a food's processed the more profit comes from it there's not always a lot of profit in people eating a high fruit or a high vegetable diet uh and i think as well we just we just bombarded we just bombarded with adverts a lot of the time right from children children are targeted uh, and and people as well. I think they don't like to be different. People like to go with the crowd a lot of the time. They want to eat what their friends are eating. They want to drink what their friends are drinking. They don't want. They don't want to eat a you know drink a green smoothie if everyone else has got diet cokes, or you know have a sort of a mango if everyone else is eating burgers. So I think there's various reasons. But I think when somebody does discover this way of eating and it works for them and they feel good. For them, it's really hard then to go back. But you don't know until you've tried it. That's the thing. And when you've tried it and you think, I feel so much better than when I was eating all that processed food and my guts are better and my energy's better and my skin's better and my hair's better. When you've got that, it's hard to go back. For someone that's never tried it, there might not be that incentive. And often it's when people get really sick. When they get at the end of their tether, When they've tried everything else and they're still not well, that's often the time when someone will go to the extreme, as they say, of trying a raw vegan diet and and getting benefits from it. Mm
1: -hmm. Great. Well, um, thanks so much, Anne. We've taken up nearly an hour of your time now. So um, I think unless Charlie's got any other questions, we'll um, we'll let you get on with your Friday evening. But thank you so much for um, taking the time to chat to us. Really appreciate it.
0: And if people want to uh, find out more about you and about what you're you're into, can you share your sort of socials or your website um, with us so that they can find you?
2: Yes. Um, so I share a lot of stuff on Facebook. Um, a lot of my research, all my newspaper clippings are on my Facebook page in albums. So I'm Anne Osborne, um, Fruit Bat Ann, I think my URL at Facebook. Also, I'm on Instagram where I do share stuff and I'm Fruit is Butte Ann Osborne on Instagram. And my web page is um, fruitgod.com. So, I have information and articles and things on there.
0: Yeah. Great. Thanks so much. Sam. Thanks, Anne. Appreciate that.
2: Thank you. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Take Thank care. you.
0: Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. bye.